The quasi-military adventurer Captain America has announced his imminent retirement. Consequently, American costume stores are reporting that they're overwhelmed by demand for replicas of his costume, from people eager to become his replacement. In Canada, The Beatle has announced his plans to unmask Daredevil on television at the site of the 1967 Montreal Expo. And on Shard Island, the mysterious scientific facility known as the Beehive appears to have exploded. Scientist Jerome Hamilton, once one of the three X's, is believed to have been killed. This is Doombot WP8 for the VOL. Zero, one, seven. This is the voice of Latvia. Zero, one, seven. Here in Latveria, we get news from all over the world. The news may be good or bad, but we will always tell you the truth, as Lord Doom sees it. Every week on The Voice of Latveria, we examine Marvel Comics history, through the career of its greatest hero, Dr. Victor Von Doom. And now, here's your host, Douglas Walk, the man who has read every Marvel superhero comic book, and lived to tell us all about it. Thank you, Doombot BR25. What we're talking about this week is a little off the beaten path for this show. It is a story where Dr. Doom appears, but Doom doesn't actually appear in it until the very last panel. This is the Nick Fury serial that ran in Strange Tales number 161 to 167. And at the end of the very final episode, it turns out that everyone in the story has been manipulated all along by Dr. Doom and his robotic companion, the Prime Mover, who we see playing a game of chess with the story's characters as, as its pieces. If you look at voiceoflotveria.com, you'll see that image there. Now, this is a very famous image of Dr. Doom. We'll see it repeated a few times in various guises down the line. And it's an amazing psychedelic blowout of an image to conclude an amazing psychedelic blowout of a story, which was written and drawn by the legendary Jim Steranko. Steranko has a relatively small body of work in comics, but it's had a huge impact, and this is where my guest this week comes in. My guest this week is James Romberger. He's a comics writer and artist. Uh, his most recent book is Post York, published by Burger Books, which absolutely gorgeous uh, short graphic novel, uh, expanding a, uh, a one-shot that he did about a decade ago. Uh, James Romberger is also a teacher, and he's also the author of the book Steranko, The Self-Created Man. And part of that book is a long interview with Steranko where they go over the formal innovations of each one of Steranko's comics. So James is here today to give us some insight into what's going on visually in these stories. James, welcome to the show. Can you tell us a little about how far back the seeds of that final image of Doom and the chessboard were planted? When I first talked to Jim, what I did was in his very first story for S.H.I.E.L.D. that he, I mean, the first couple issues, he, he, he finished over Kirby's layouts. Right. But the first one he actually wrote and drew himself was, it was issue number 154. Okay. And on page three, two of that issue, we have this. This is a picture of like, you know, here's Fury talking. And then you have this thing of like the Hydra guy holding the little mini shield guys. And then you have this panel, which is the, the cast of Kurt, you know, shield standing on a, a sort of chessboard. Mm -hmm. And I said to, you know, and I was, I, I talked about this conversation I had with Marguerite to Jim 
And I said, yeah. And when Marguerite said something about, oh, Jim must be a very good chess player. I said, well, (laughs) culmination of this whole shield saga is the chess game with the prime mover and Dr. Doom. And she goes, right. Okay. This is how he thinks. He's a, you know, he's a lock unraveler, which is what he is. He was an escape artist, you know, he, he, he likes puzzles and he likes it. So all of this stuff that he put in here, this, this page in the first one is a foreshadowing of, you know, the, the chess game that, that builds the whole thing builds up to. So that's, you know, and I didn't realize that Dr. Doom also, the first time you see Dr. Doom, he has a chessboard. So that just buttresses that whole thing that this is, he's pretty well aware of this history because he's been reading these things. So, you know, yeah, that, that make that actually ties it all even more together. I think there was one other interesting visual allusion to an older story that's uh, in that last episode. Um, there's th- that, that panel with the like pink, hot pink moray effect of like uh, Fury and the Yellow Claw looking at each other. Um, oh, oh, Intilla, Jim called it. What <laughs> what do you call it? The, the FX Scintilla. <laughs> FX Scintilla. That panel looks very, very much like a Ditko panel from 30 issues earlier. It's a panel of Dr. Strange and the Ancient One. They're posed exactly the same way. They have the same expressions on their faces. Um, and it's it's in the same series. It's a different feature, but it's uh, Strange Tales 137. I think in a sense, like Jim probably knew where he wanted to get to with that story. And so then he just spent all that time like filling in the gaps, you know? I mean, he might've had, I don't know if he had a whole overall trajectory in mind, but he does tend to look at things as a whole, a whole project in a sense, I think. I think, I mean, it's just like a logical way to go at it. But see, that was the thing with Jim also is that he would take the extra time to make sure he did it right. So, you know, when he was drawing and writing the thing, he would, I mean, he let the inks go, I guess, because of time and he's not lettering because nobody lettered their own stuff. Right. But, uh, but he would take the time to color it, you know, and he made sure to always take the time to color it, you know, and cause you know, they were only paying like a nickel a page or something. Right. So it's really like, it's not any kind of financial incentive. It's purely to, to have it done right. You know. I mean, there's people now, I guess like somebody like Tilly Walden or whatever. I mean, that's, you know, she's not, she's not really going to function the same way if she doesn't do her color. So right. yeah, to do it. So, you know, it, it, but it isn't everybody. And some people don't really think in color, I guess they think in line or whatever. I don't know. I mean, I know Paul Pope, for instance, he's a line, he's a really better in black and white, I think. And he not, he doesn't really think in color. And I've seen him try to color himself. But it's not really like, it's just not really there. It's like, he's a black and white guy. So it's not really, doesn't, and when somebody else colors it, it flattens it out to me. It's like, it, it's much more three-dimensional alive. And- so do you want to pick out a, a couple of these, uh, couple of these uh, Stranko Nick Fury stories to kind of walk us through? What I can tell you is that I can just tell you from my notes. Okay. Uh, I wrote it out. In the first issue that you said, Strange Tales 161. Which, which is weird. I looked at it again. I was like, oh, I should have said 160. But, uh, you know, that's... Yeah, well, even starting with this one, it's like the second doom. Well, I didn't see, I looked at the earlier st- story. I didn't see a first, and I don't think they're referring to Dr. Doom. No. It's 
actually doomed. Okay. Yeah. And they have like the Fantastic Four star guest starring in this thing. But I mean, this this issue is not all that spectacular for like or innovative, particularly. I mean, it looks very Kirby esque. There's one place where Jim pointed out he's got you know Nick Fury gets captured by the bad guys. I'm not sure who they work for, but they they tie him up with this metal harness that, and Jim goes, oh yes, that's a, a restraint device that harks back to my days of doing, you know, escape magic. Like, oh really? Huh. Anyway, so that was all that he had to say about that issue and nothing really happens in that issue of interest. It's Nick Fury fighting with Captain America, which I don't really care about. I don't know if you do. But, uh, the next issue, So Evil the Night. Oh yeah, now that's a very Stanley type of title. You know, this one has, I pointed out, it has some very Bernard Krigstein kind of panel breakdowns. So there's like a, a series, like a, it's like a wide panel of a car broken up into, you know, with a separate kind of segmented by other like little panels, sort of Krigstein stuff. But it's so you can see that the car changes color. <laughs> right. It's a color changing car given to. And that, Nick that, like, his guy Q, which is sort of like M, or like, I don't know, I forgot the James Bond character. What's the James Bond yeah. high person, you know? It's, no, that, that's that's what it is. I was going to say that, that 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 progression through the colors, like yeah. that let's go through the rainbow colors one by one, is such a Steranko move. Yes. On page four is a really lovely, uh, you know, machinery drawing, which I like. And that's, you know, but whatever. I mean, it's not really particularly innovative. And uh, and then the rest of the thing is like a sort of a fight scenes and all that. But the next issue right. is one sixty three is the first one I ever had of Steranko. Yes, my mind. Aha, not the only one. How old were you then? I was uh, nine years old. First page is a freaking like so, a psychedelic poster. I think this came out at the same time as Alex Toth's uh, The Devil's Doorway in the House of Mystery. And it's a very similar type of splash page. And I've, both of them freaked me out. They're both like, look like psychedelic posters to me because I was aware at the time of these things being done in San Francisco, the Rick Griffin and, and Moscoso posters, which I, I loved then and I still love now. So those things reminded me of that. Anyway, this whole issue, I think is just really well drawn. And it has these great sequences of Nick Fury's underwater. I mean, any underwater scenes are always cool. So he escapes from a giant octopus underwater. And he has actually these little weird things like a, a mechanical device to, to spread bars of a cage type thing, which Jim said he had that actual tool when he was being an escape artist. So he had various little, I don't think he had a little exploding cone, but. He might have. <laughs> and then you have the yellow claw and some kind of ridiculous, weird, psychic, bloody, you know, viewer thing. And then, like, a few pages later, is this really fantastic full page of a, of a, a dragon doll, which is another, again, another psychedelic-looking poster type thing. So these things are all great. And, they, and I remember they made, like, Somebody made blacklight posters of all the Marvel uh, 
things at some point, and those I had a bunch of them, but these would have been good. They could have done these. <laughs> There's a very Will Eisner scene of the yellow claw goes and visits this old man who's who's created some you know device for him, and that's a very Will Eisner-ish uh, little sequence. And then all of a sudden, that the old man pulls off you know the rubber mask, and it's Nick Fury, and you get this fantastic like negative close up of the uh, the yellow claw's eyes which like was totally shocking in the middle of this thing, like a black and white negative. And underneath it was these panels of Nick Fury looking like he's trying, you know, it's like a little sequence of him looking like he's really getting ready to barf or something. And then he slowly sinks down because he's losing consciousness. That sequence was uh, the inspiration for Spiegelman when he did Two-Fisted Painters in Raw Number 1. He did an homage to that particular page. Now, so it was pretty funny because I know they knew each other because number one, they were they were both in this issue of Witsen number five that had the elephant's ass on the cover. Okay. And Ed Paschke, the painter, did the back cover. Did you even notice that? He's like a famous painter, Ed Paschke. Wallywood is Wallywood is the connector of everybody. Like he he is the nexus of everything. It had Jim's uh uh, Talon portfolio in it. It was this great uh, Von Bodie junk waffle strip. I mean, it's a great issue. It's got Von Bodie, it's got Steranko, and right next to Steranko is this really early strip by Art Spiegelman, which is just awful. <laughs> it's just terribly, didn't even draw. And it's something like, it's like this hippie stuff like, you know, go inside yourself, eat, become your own food. <laughs> it's like, Art, what kind of drugs are you on? <laughs> Anyway, they were, they were they knew each other, and so I remember I saw Jim, and they said something about Art doing that. He goes, "Oh, how is little Artie?" Oh. And if, that's it. To Art, he probably said would have said, "Oh, so how is little Jim?" Because they're both about the same height. You know? like, nice. But they know each other, and what's actually interesting to me is that they both have this quality that it, drawing doesn't come easy to them. They have to really, really work at it. It's like it's like if art had had not drawn mouse as basically layouts, because that's that's layouts. If he tried to f- do finished pages, he never would have finished it. Yeah. So he did it in this like a very like rough thumbnails, basically. That's what it looks like to me, and it works really well that way. It didn't need to be finished to the ex- you know you know what is early stuff like Ace Hole Midget Detective. I mean, right. I love them, but they're excruciatingly done. And he suffered greatly doing them. You know, drawing doesn't come easy for him. Nothing comes easy for him. He's not a natural. He's really working at it. And so is Jim. Jim's the same way. He overthinks everything. Procrastinate. I don't think he procrastinates. I think he's just an excruciating about the way he approaches it. You know? And I think they're both like two peas in a pod. A pair of them, you know? So another you know, thing that's uh, really interesting to me about this issue is almost every page of the story has a dominant color or two colors. Like right. even just uh, like on these pages that you see, like here's the blue page, here's the green page. Yeah. And, oh, the, the it's so beautiful in the original colors though. Yeah. yeah. And when you get to that, that Eisner homage, it is an Eisner homage. It's also effectively the page where the dominant color is black. Yes. It's, well, it's kind of Eisner, but it's also the, he, I think Craigstein's probably the, yeah. It's like what I saw going through, it was like a lot of Kurtzman and a lot of Brigstein yeah. in mm-hmm. terms of 
those panel breakdowns that, yeah. you know, I think, well, Jim, I'm not sure if you did that for, I found, I found instances of, of both of the and Mort Meskin doing these odd little things that, you know, you couldn't really credit it to Jim, but that's all right. I mean, he, he synthesized it all and put it together and he did other things. So, you know, he, he's a good designer, you know, Sometimes though you're looking at these drawings, I think what's the, oh, here it comes. The next issue, all right. Black Noon. This is a mess, you know. Kind of ruined a good chunk of it. But Bill Everett was good. I mean, it wasn't like he was a problem. It's like I remember some of his submariners or something right around this time. They weren't bad. Yeah. He's a strange style. He's really coming from the golden age. You know, why they decided to slap him on the strand, I have no idea. It makes really no sense. And then I love this. He's got like He's got him putting on this invisibility suit. He didn't count it as an innovation. I just was like, <laughs> Jim, he's got an invisibility suit. <laughs> Vector suit. So, yeah, that was it for that issue. It's really like, I don't know. You still got this kind of like freaky Steranko Tech, Kirby Tech kind of device that I'm show showing right here. That, uh... Cool, but they're really harking to, I mean, they're design pieces. And they're they're yeah. sim coming from... I think is Richard Powers or something as much as, you know, sci-fi book covers stuff as much as Kirby type stuff, you know? Yeah. So he's coming from a lot of different influences that, uh, illustration influences as well. You know? So, uh, we get to the next issue and we've got, uh, we've got that, that grid again on the cover, the, uh, the almost chessboard kind of grid. I, I wasn't seeing it that way, but yeah, it is the same kind of grid. It's also a you know, decent way to keep track of your perspective, but. Uh, this one has this fantastic double page spread. Yeah. Really like, like an Errol Flynn scene, you know, the, the shipboarding. And I said to Jim, oh, that's a magnificent drawing, but he's like, yeah, well, that doesn't count as, you know, magnificent drawings don't, don't you know, don't count as innovations. <laughs> like, yeah, but they count as magnificent drawings. Like there's, <laughs> give me credit for that big scene with lots of little figures and when you go back you can see more in it yeah yeah it's cool it's like but then the, the rest of this issue i mean there's some like effects and things here and there but a big chunk of the last few pages looks like he drew them in like five minutes yeah uh pretty sloppy stuff here you know i don't know a little it's a little meaty looking to me it's all right. I mean, you know, when he would do these kind of cool, you know, you know, pop art things, I had like a, you know, Murray machine, like, you know, those these transparent things I could put over things, and push them around. I mean, op art and all that, you know, the Bridget Riley and all that was very popular then. So, so we were all into it, you know. He just was using it. And, you know, of course, the people go, oh, no, you can't do that. But he, I think he even did, like, color holds a couple of times, which was really pretty much unheard of in those days. I mean, you have to ask the printer to do it, you know? Oh, 166. This is another one of my favorites. I love okay. this one. But, see, I missed – I had that one I really love, and then I missed the next two issues when I was a kid. I didn't get the next two issues. So I didn't see all that Bill Everett inking and the other thing. I just – the next one I got was this one. And I was like, ooh, he's still good. <laughs> so I just The story it. doesn't make a whole lot of sense on its own. It never does. That's never the point with him. Yeah. Well, I didn't care. Yeah. I mean, I did, 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 did it really matter to me what had happened in the intervening issues? Not really. I was like, yeah, oh, here no. 
I'm, he's somehow jumping out of a plane with his cigar lit, which is probably not a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> cool wingsuit. Okay, that's cool. You know? And then the next couple pages, really nice. I like that underwater machine thing. I like this whole thing. Well, then you have this. That maze page is awesome. There's no question. It's got a layered imagery with that kind of you know diagram thing over his face with like two two drawing two panels kind of in one but with also a, a, an overlaid image which i thought was pretty unique and then the whole thing of turning the word balloon sideways and upside down and all that i was like that's pretty unheard of at that time you know? and the next one is also kind of a surrealistic thing like with the spiral yeah. So these are really what Stranko is known for is these kind of unique designs. I, right. How innovative they are, I don't really know. I'd call that layered imagery in the first panel there pretty, pretty innovative. But just the idea of doing things for a mainstream comic like this to make it look, you know, taking it very far. Well, then, of course, you turn the page and I'm fascinated with this bondage scene. Okay. <laughs> what? Oh my God! It's like uh, Prince Valiant hanging from his fingers or something, right? Yeah, it's like a famous panel where he's like, "Ow!" But in the page before, Jimmy Woo has well. Here, I love this. He shoots the guy behind his back, yeah. which is him. Goes so that's the Burt Lancaster move, right? Why can you do that? Because he had three hundred and sixty degree sunglasses. Anyway, I thought this was a great issue. I loved it for some reason just the level of drawing and i guess joe sent on the ink so because he's that super pristine quality to it you know i mean he almost like wholesomes up everything in other way he did that to kirby too he has a he used to do treasure chests the catholic yeah. and and he could draw well i mean you know joe Sinnott had chops but he also had this super wholesome clean look on everything so he's remember i told charles burns once his inking looks like Joe Sinnott on Bad Acid. <laughs> <laughs> That's about right. He is like super clean like that, yeah. though. Yeah. Like, with such a perverse sensibility. <laughs> anyway, so then the last one. Yes. Is this huge four-page spread. Of course, I didn't get this until many, many years later. And, of course, I never bought two issues. So. <laughs> see the whole thing together until I got the stupid reaper with bad color. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's a gimmick. It works. Yeah. What I do like is, uh, is that spread of the Dr. Doom and the prime mover. And I don't really see necessarily why Dr. Doom is in this. It could have been anybody. It could have been any villain. It could have been Baron Zemo. Or, yeah. Anything is there? Do you see any reason for it to be? I mean, he's thinking. He goes, "Blast those swans!" <laughs> like he said, how much? Because he fails so much. <laughs> he he failed at everything. He tried. He keeps trying to kill everybody, and he can't win. So he loathes his own failure. I mean, in some ways, it is it is Steranko saying thank you and goodbye to Kirby as yes. the prime source of what he's doing. Well, not really, because then he went and did those Captain Americas and everything, you know? Yeah. Of course, then they did that weird CODA issue that's the alien thing, which doesn't really count as part of this story. So Yeah. No. Yeah, um, I didn't really... Still pretty, though. Well, it's... You know, it's... 
I, I really dislike this kind of this kind of thing. Right. The movement. That's that's the strobe effect of Mort Meskin. I'm, I'm just not really thrilled with it. I, I don't think it really works. It's uh, the Moy. I call it a Moybridge effect, really. Sort of, you know. That makes sense. Well, it's funny when you think about. It, I, I tell my students this, like, try to explain to them that uh, when you look at really, you know, paintings from the 17th or 16th or 17th century, nobody knew how to draw how a horse runs. You know? Right. It, they draw them with their feet splayed out like like that, you know. Yeah. yeah. And then, so it really wasn't until photography or and Moybridge and stuff like that that people actually saw. Oh, animals like alternate their feet. I mean, maybe some people looked at it carefully enough to realize it, but most of the time, you look at these looking at these Degas paintings of the races or something, you know before he saw photography and he's doing the horses with the ridiculous splayed feet. And then afterwards he's got it right. You know? So it was just like, Oh yeah. They also then the cropping of images, they didn't realize photography made all these things possibly people didn't really know to crop things properly. You know, you didn't realize you could have a face like halfway out of the picture, stuff like that. You know? So it's like, you see these kind of bizarre his, art historical references come trickling down through the comics, you know, or try to go, oh, well, actually the root of, you know, somebody's ridiculous holding lines is like, you know, these Japanese prints that freaked out Toulouse-Lautrec, you know what I mean? So, you know, it's all, it's all in there. The history is, it's a continuum. You know? it, it's interesting to see how the the period of Kirby stuff that really went into Steranko was really only what Kirby had been doing for the last couple of years before he started. I mean, if you look at like Kirby before 63, 64, like it's beautiful. The storytelling chops are really solid, but it's not the specific kind of spectacle and the specific kind of lines that Steranko is like, yes, I want to do this at first. Right. Uh, and then you see the the effect that Steranko has on the artists around him and the people who started reading him. And within a year after these stories are coming out, you're seeing people doing knockoffs of them. And you mentioned uh, Barry Smith at first, and he was one of the very early ones doing that at the same time as he was growing out of his own, like there's some, there's a lot of Kirby in him. And then almost immediately there's a bunch of Steranko in him. Uh, Can you get Third hand Krigstein coming through. Yeah, exactly. Krigstein is from Steranko, liking Krigstein, coming out through Barry Smith, which is really weird. And right after the the uh, that Hound of the Baskervilles story that Steranko doesn't shield, uh, right. th three months later, there's a parody of it that Herb Trimpey draws. It shows what? up in yeah, it shows up in Not Brandeck. Oh God. And it is like a panel for a panel parody of that Steranko story. That's not an easy story to, to, to even pull apart, but I had a hard time with it with him. It was, it, it's, it's complicated and yeah. it's not successful, yeah. but it, hey, not all our children are beautiful. He, he really is like trying some stuff out there and you yeah. know, working different ways to, to tell a story. But uh, yeah, I think those, those shield issues have a lot of growth in them. You know? Yeah. And there's only four of them. And that's like four shields, three Captain Americas, and that was it. Yeah. Then there's like that short horror story and the short romance story and 
that was it for there's a Dante's Inferno, which I've never seen the whole thing of, and that got oh, wow. I'm still I still would like to see that. And he doesn't want to let it out. I don't know why. <laughs> it's another story sort of like that look of the at the stroke at midnight. Uh, well, I don't think he needed to keep doing you know, I, I would have preferred he just did more things like, you know, doing the Chandler and yeah. experimenting with other forms and other, you know, other genres or not even going beyond genre. Like he could yeah. have done a, his autobiographical thing would have been interesting. I guess to, to, to kind of wrap it up, when, you, how would you explain Steranko to your students? Like what's. I don't really run. To, I mean, I do teach some comics classes and okay. usually, you know, what I, I do is I send them some PDFs and I always include uh, at the stroke of midnight story because it is most refined piece, even though it was, you know, Stanley felt the need to screw around with it, which he shouldn't have, you know, and it didn't help it. It didn't improve it in any way. It was just a kind of a power thing. Like I can, I'll do this. Jim asked him not to mess with it. He messed with it just to say, I'm the boss, you know, but it's a it's a pretty perfected thing, you know. And then I, there's his he did this thing. It's like a it's all in one spread. It was in com well, actually, he did a couple of things that came out in his comic scene. One of them was uh, the Block. That's an anti drug comic, and I think that's actually really good. It's really well done, and it's really. I mean, you feel like he knows the kids. It's like black kids in a in an inner city, but you feel like he knows them. Like he's drawing. From, from stuff he knows intimately. He lives in that neighborhood. And so it doesn't feel like as cliched as like, you know, the, oh God, that Spider-Man crap. That was so pathetic. But then the Neil Adams, you know, uh, Denny O'Neill thing. Okay, but it's pretty cliched, you know? Jim's thing didn't feel so cliched. I think it was a lot more. And also it was done for free and it was done to be to given to kids. So I, I use that as an example. And he also had another thing that was in comics. He was a, you know, all in one spread. It's called Frogs, which is like a story that it's a wordless story. He says it can be read in all these different combinations. I, I don't know if they all work, but yeah, you could. It, it's sort of an experimental way of going about it. But I like it graphically. And it's like, oh, you can fit. This is how much information you can fit. So I kind of like to show kids like, you know, this is a whole story. There's a whole, there's like years of story in this one page, you know, and he's packed all this information in. And similarly with Jim's thing, it's like this spread and it's got just so much going on. And it's, it's a, you can analyze it from different angles. And that, so those are very good examples of things you do when you're thinking. It's like thinking comics with a, you know, an appealing kind of adventure style. James Romberger, thank you so much again for joining us. Next week, Christine Hanefelk of the other Murdoch Papers and the Save Daredevil campaign will be joining me to discuss Daredevil 3738 and Fantastic Four 73. Meanwhile, if you've got any questions about anything having to do with Doctor Doom, this show, or Latvian culture in general that you'd like us to answer, the address to email them to is faithfulretainerboris at voiceoflatveria.com. The Voice of Latveria podcast is made possible by the patronage of listeners like you. If you support us through patreon.com slash douglaswolk, you'll get access to our private book club and discussion board for Marvel nerds, the 616 Society. You can find out more about this podcast on our website, voiceoflatveria.com, and follow us on Twitter. 
This is Douglas Walk for the VOL. Douglas Walk appears by special arrangement with Universe 1218. His book, All of the Marvels, is a guided tour, of 60 years and half a million pages of the Marvel comic story. All of the Marvels will be published by Penguin Press this October. Lord Doom, commands you to order it. Zero, one, seven. This is, the voice of Latvia. Zero, one, seven. Tomorrow, on Art and Money, it's perhaps the greatest surviving artwork of antiquity, and a nightmarish liability for its caretakers. The legendary Golden Bull, an enormous statue made entirely of gold, has miraculously survived for millennia. But following the recent attempt by the Circus of Crime to steal the bull, with the assistance of Thor, its insurers have arranged for the statue to be transferred to the Guggenheim Museum, where it will be the sole pre-modern artwork on display. The story behind this surprising decision tomorrow on Art and Money, here on the VOL, this concludes our broadcast day. May Doom's terrifying face inspire you to devotedly implement his policies until you die. (laughs) 